0: To love learning, to laugh, to love, to be loved, to see beauty, to understand, to bring grace to the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. I like to dedicate my podcast to a nonprofit group, and I am again dedicating this episode to internationalforgiveness.com. We know that forgiveness is a topic that comes from religion, from the wisdom of religions. However, forgiveness isn't just from religion. Forgiveness is also supported by hundreds of psychological studies many of which have been done by Dr. Robert Enright. And these studies show the physical and mental benefits of forgiveness. So I encourage everyone to look at internationalforgiveness.com to learn more about it. Today's guest I'm very excited to share is Dr. Beth Romreimer, PhD psychologist, who has been a leader and a pioneer throughout her life. This morning I shared with my daughter Julia as I drove her to high school that Dr. Beth Ramreimer was in the first class at Princeton University of women graduates and they graduated in 1973. And my Julia was shocked to hear that it was that late. So Dr. Beth Ramreimer did a lot in her 20s. She created the Victim Witness Assistant Unit in Florida, which continues today, and that helps crime victims in the Second Judicial Circuit. She also co-founded and was the first board president of Refuge House, which is a shelter for surviving families of domestic abuse in Florida. She is one of the psychologists who created the field of forensic geriatrics. In addition, she's a national leader, international in the advocacy for psychologists having the right to prescribe medicine. Further, she is on the board of directors of Thresholds. That's one of the largest and oldest social service organizations in Illinois that serves the seriously mentally ill. She's the chair and president of the Board of Directors of the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, currently, and she is the co-founder and co-chair of the International Movement for Prescriptive Authority. And I'd like to mention that Dr. Beth Romreimer is currently a candidate for president of the American Psychological Association, APA. So if you are a member of that organization, The voting will begin the day after the release of this podcast. So without further ado, Dr. Beth Romreimer. Thank you so much for being here, Beth Romreimer. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Alexandra, you you, um,
1: are doing this podcast as a great service for psychologists all over the world, and I am honored to be one of your guests.
0: I am delighted to have you, and it's my privilege to do this as a service. So, I have thought about this. I've been looking at videos about you. I've been reading about you and really feeling warmth and total appreciation for you as a human, as a woman. And I noticed that you mentioned a quote and I would like to begin with this quote yes. by Rabbi Hillel and So the quote that I noticed that you mentioned, you paraphrase it a little bit differently, but here it is. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But when I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So what does that mean to you? Alexandra, I'm just so happy that you
1: focused initially on this quote because that's really been... The center of my life um since as far back as i can remember um I grew up in a a very um committed socially conscious socially activist family and um and my grandparents um, immigrated from uh, from ukraine um when they were um, my grandmother was one of my grandmother's was thirteen my grandfather was Twenty my another grandmother was a little bit younger in her nine or ten. Um, so I really have a um all of my grandparents that come uh, come from Russian uh, heritage and coming to the United States, coming to america you know, their their vision was that the the roads were paved with gold that was that was the mythology um but for mm-hmm. them it, it was. I mean, it was a utopia. I mean, it was, they were, um, they were, they were being subjected to significant persecution, harassment, um, attacks, physical attacks, psychological attacks, verbal attacks. Um, and, and some of their you're neighbors talking about in, discrimination. In, I'm talking about the pogroms that were taking place in, in Russia, um, when my grandparents, um, were living there. And what precipitated their having to leave oh. Russia for for the United States. Um, so so um, uh, their neighbors, community members were being murdered in the pogroms and the attacks. Um, family after family tried to leave so that they could come to a land, a country where there would be freedom. Um, freedom to work, freedom from persecution, freedom from harassment, freedom from attacks, um, freedom to think, freedom to speak. Um, so it was really quite the experience for, for my grandparents and, and all of their um, you know, family members who could come to the United States and, and their friends and neighbors. And so I mm. grew up knowing this family history Knowing that things were better for us in the United States, um, but also knowing that there were still many people in our country who suffered from um, from racism and from um, harassment um, and did not have full freedoms to think and to to speak their minds. And that, that really, from my family perspective, that wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough that we um, were doing well, that we were able to appreciate liberty, but that it was important for us that all peoples um, have liberty, people in the United States, people all over the world. Um, so it was something that that was instilled in me from a very young age.
0: And that's the part about if I am only for myself, what am I? Right. And how did your family show their dedication to helping other people's, even if they, if they felt like things were okay for them? What were they doing for social justice? Right. Well, my
1: mom was a, a dedicated social activist. Um, her father... Um, had been a labor union leader, actually, and had led labor strikes, um, uh, during the 1930s. And she and, and her sister, my aunt, through their last days of life, um, were committed, committed to social justice, committed to act on their beliefs. They marched for freedom. They marched for the end of discrimination. They marched for the end of racism. They um, marched um, against the, the war in Vietnam. And my mother was a, she, her profession was a teacher. She was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. And she taught me well how to be a social activist. She, when I was 14, um, and this was 1966, so it was during the Vietnam War. And she took me to some meetings, anti-war meetings. And, um, there was, uh, there was a, We called it the summer of 66. We called it Vietnam summer, summer 66, summer 67, um, Vietnam summer. And and she and I took our leaflets and took our notepads and we knocked on doors in our neighborhood. And um, we did that all summer. We talked to, we talked to, talked with our neighbors about the war in Vietnam and why we were against it.
0: Wow. You were 14. Yeah. That's the age of a freshman in high school. Yeah. 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 And you were talking about these international issues. Yes. Yes. Well it was it was vital to my
1: mom. It was and became vital to me. And I've carried that through me with me through my whole
0: life. And when you were in college, you worked for a congresswoman. Yes, I had the wonderful privilege and honor to
1: work for Congresswoman Bella Abzug, who was just a wonderful spokesperson for protest, for speaking up, speaking truth to power, when other people were not so bold as to do that. Um, she was a feminist, and she was a, a big part of, of the anti-war movement in the 1960s and 1970s. And she, she spoke up about the woman's role. It, it was interesting. One of her campaign mottos was, this woman's place is in the House, the House of Representatives.
0: Oh,
1: that's great! That's great. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I was uh, a sophomore at um, Princeton, you no, know, when I was a junior at Princeton, and um, I was opened up my Sunday New York Times and um, the Weekend Review. There was a a front page picture and an article about her. And one of the things that she said in that article was, "I believe that our Congress needs to be more diverse." And the diversity in terms of color and um, religion and ethnicity, um, but also in terms of profession. She says, you know, all of us are lawyers. And she was a, actually a very well-known labor lawyer from the 1950s. She was a well-known uh, civil rights and labor lawyer from the 1950s. Yeah. But she said, we need more than just lawyers in Congress. Um, we need doctors and we need dentists and we need social workers and, and psychologists and and so I wrote to her and I said, well, you know, I'm, I wanted to be a psychologist since I was five years old and I'm here at Princeton University and I'm, I'm majoring in psychology, but I also have thoughts about wanting to run for Congress. What do you think? <laughs> and, um, a few hmm. days later, I got a letter from one of her, uh, one of the legislative assistants, Margo, and Margo said to me, yes. Psychologists, we, we would love to have psychologists in Congress. Um, and how would you like to work as a legislative intern in Bella's absent, Bella Absick's office this summer? Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote back and I said I'd love to do that. And I sent a couple letters of, of recommendation and uh, I think a statement of interest. And um, about a month later, I found out that I was selected. And um, so it was just a thrilling opportunity to be on the Hill. Uh, it was actually the summer of seventy-two, mm-hmm. so that was actually when Watergate broke. The whole Watergate scandal broke,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then there was a program, Princeton um, in Washington program. So I was able to um, meet with other Princeton students who were working in Washington, and we had seminars and um, with um, uh, Al Haig, who had been um, at, at one point he was the Secretary of Defense. In the Nixon administration um, and he was a special assistant to Nixon. We met with various members of the Nixon administration.
0: Meaning it was seminars where you were learning from these other teachers at the same time that you were. In
1: <laughs> we were at the White House and we had a, a seminar uh, with Ron Nesson who was the uh, White House press secretary at the time and um, it was, it was yeah, fascinating experiences.
0: So from what I learned about you, your sophomore year in college was a very pivotal time for you and that was around the time that I read that you became a student of Carolyn Sheriff and I wonder if you can tell, well, was that before or after your work with Bella Abzug? It was actually both before and after. Okay. Okay. So could you tell listeners who Carolyn Sheriff is and how this came about? Yes.
1: Um, Carolyn Sheriff, along with her husband, Muzifer Sheriff, were two of the most prominent social psychologists in the 20th century. Their first major field experiment, which drew a lot of renown, um, was called the Robber's Cave Experiment that they did in the 1950s. Um, in Robert's Cave, Oklahoma. And, um, what they wanted to test, they wanted to create social conflict, um, real social conflict, it's called, um, in a group of boys and in a setting that was similar to a, to a summer camp. And then they wanted to be able to bring the, the two groups of boys, the group, the boys, the groups of boys who were in conflict, they wanted to bring those groups back into um, a cooperative um, relationship, um, and so what they they created their construct was the construct of the superordinate goal. If there were if there are two groups in conflict who needed to needed each other to accomplish a goal, um, and that they knew that they couldn't accomplish that goal without the other group, would that help to create an affiliation and, and a liking for each other? despite um, a history of of hostility
0: and antipathy. So first they created a way for these two groups to start to compete with each other and dislike each other. Exactly. And feel that their own in-group was better uh, than better. the other. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so they successfully did that, right? right. How right. did they do that again? Like little games or... What they first
1: did is that they, when the boys came to camp, they were uh, ten boys in each group, and they were the boys were were matched. So they were the same age. They were the same. um, They were all white. They were the same religion. They were all Protestant. They were in the same grade in school. They came from Mm -hmm. similar communities. um, So they were absolutely matched on all on most variables. Uh, Came from good, you know. "Quote unquote," they were from stable families. Mm -hmm. Um, They were middle class, and so they they were brought to to this camp, and they were each they they thought that these were the days before there was informed consent and full disclosure. Mm -hmm. Um, So they thought they were coming to camp for two weeks, and at first they were completely separated, completely isolated from each other. So they each had a few days to develop an in-group of their own. That the activities that they liked, uh, you know, what they did at mealtimes, they developed um, uh, a social group and a social hierarchy, a natural social hierarchy. And then after a few days, they started to kind of, the counselors who would be experimenters and the observers, um, started to to manipulate things so that the two groups would kind of, kind of see each other in passing and there was some curiosity about the groups. And then a couple of days after that, they said, okay, here are these two groups getting together. And, you know, and they started to um, create contests. So there was tugs of war, there were swimming races, and there were you know, volleyball um, games and, and softball games, and, and they all involved contests. And, and then the groups not became um, more cohesive in themselves, and then very competitive, and then even hostile towards the other group, and and it got to yeah. the point where there was um they would go and they would short the sheets, you know, in, in the other another boys' cabin, and and they would steal food and they would throw food at the other group in the in the <laughs> dining hall, and they would mm-hmm. call the other you know group names, and so got, the tempers got pretty hot, and then after about six days of that the counselor said, okay, you know, if that's enough, we need to do some things where, you know, let's let's see if we can bring, you know, you boys together. And so they started mm-hmm. to create um goals of the you know, building things, for example, that they needed mm-hmm. the other group. They could one group had certain materials, another group had another set of materials, and they needed each other to build the project. And and they were then rewarded for being cooperative and being um, amenable with the other group. And so by the end of, of, of the two weeks, the groups had, had become friendly again and were cooperating again. And the subordinate goal, you know, appeared to be the thing that brought them together. So, so my, as a sophomore at Princeton, I was, I had known since I was five years old that I wanted to be a psychologist. So one of the professors, John Darley, who's, I don't know if you're, if you know this, this, this famous um, case, like the, the Kitty Genovese case, he did a lot of work on the kind of the bystander effect when, when people, when there's a, when there's a, a crime taking place and, and there are mm-hmm. bystanders and, and many people don't do anything because they're they're they are they do not know what to do and there's a diffusion of responsibility. Right. So John Darley did that work. Um and but he so he approached me and he said, um, Beth, you know, I why don't you come and kind of work with me? I'd like to be your advisor and let's talk about what you want to do in psychology. Um so he just would give me all kinds of readings and when he gave me the Robber's Cave experiment. I said to him, I said, that's it. That's just, that's what I want to do. I want to create ways in which people who are in conflict can work together. And the sheriffs did this, you know, in the field. And that's what I want to do. I don't want to just work in the laboratory with rats. I want, I want to work with people out in the community. And I and I said, gee, you know, I'd really love, I'd love to work with them. And he said, well, you know, why don't you call heroin sheriff? She's a little bit more accessible than news and um, they're at Penn State, and here's their phone number, call. Hmm. So um, is I, it, that was that was the end of my sophomore year. And I, the day I got home, I, don't, I didn't even unpack these three um, I said to my mom, I have to make a phone call. And um, in those days, we didn't have cell phones. So I picked up the phone in, in my house, and, and I dialed the number of Carolyn Sheriff's office, and, and she picked up the phone. And I introduced myself. I said, um, hi, my name is Beth Rome. And, I'm a psychology major at Princeton University, and I just read the Rubber's Cave Experiment, and I'd really be interested in talking to you about it and learning from you and working with you. And her response was, I don't see why not.
0: How flexible and open of her. Oh,
1: I mean, really, it was it, that relationship is one of the high points of my life to this day. Wow. Because she became a mentor to me for several years and, until the end of her life. And I said, I would like to come study with you. And and we worked it out that I could come, to she was at, at Penn State University, so I could come spend two weeks with her in January of my junior year. And what I needed to do was take my exams early, my final exams early, and not take a you know, mid-semester, mid-year break. Um, so so I spent exam week and the mid-semester break with her.
0: So you took your exams early.
1: I took my exams early. And I when I went to my dean, I, you know, I proposed this plan. And she said, she said, well, I don't know if we can do that. I looked at her. I said, I said why not? <laughs> and then I said to her, you know, some of my friends
0: take their exams early because they want to go skiing.
1: I want to go <laughs> study.
0: Yeah. How, how could she say no right, to that? Right,
1: right. So then she said, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, <laughs> So yeah, so I just arranged to, I studied, so instead of taking a study week in January and then then my exams, I studied over the holidays, over the Christmas holiday. I took my exams and then I went to Penn State for two weeks so I could study with Carolyn Sheriff. Um, And it was, was, she taught me so much about um, how to observe, how to observe dynamics in a group, how to observe how to look at kind of social hierarchies, how to look how they're formed in reality, in in nature, in 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 a classroom. And we did a lot of work where she would she would be lecturing or she would be holding you know group group discussions and I would just mm-hmm. be there as an observer. And then after the classes she would say, What did you see? What you know, tell me what you saw, tell me what you thought. Hmm. Um so it was a constant dialogue and and learning and we you know, just developed such a, a good relationship um, that we started corresponding. I, I have at least a hundred letters that she and I sent back and forth to each other, and um, handwritten letters. Beautiful. And then I I spent time with her at the end of my junior year. I spent another week with her, and then in my senior year, I went to spend a week with her around the Christmas holiday, and then week with her, actually after I graduated, and hmm. she had very much wanted me to, to come study with her at Penn State for graduate school, and and ultimately I decided not to uh, because I wanted to be a clinical psychologist and there wasn't a clinical program at Penn State or or mm-hmm. there wasn't a clinical program that I was interested in, although I wanted very much you know, fervently to be with her, but she and I were able to you know, work out a relationship. So that we continue to correspond. Again, um, she died in 1981. I graduated college in 1973. So we kept up a correspondence until she died.
0: Oh, she died in 83. 81. 81. I graduated in 73. Yeah. Hmm.
1: yeah but she was an enormous, she continues to be an enormous influence on my life. And um actually, her daughter she has three daughters, mm-hmm. and um, her middle daughter was at Rutgers when I was at Princeton, so she so her daughter and I um, mm-hmm. became friends, saw each other when we were we were both undergraduates at the same time, and have kept in touch, and I still keep in touch with her today
0: and is her daughter in the field?
1: no, her daughter's a librarian oh okay, okay. yeah, her middle daughter's a librarian, her eldest daughter is her eldest daughter. I think her youngest daughter was an economist, and her eldest daughter. Um, I don't remember now what her eldest daughter does. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, you know, they—they're all you know into each in their own kind of specialized areas and, and enjoying their lives. And um, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it just—it was just this very, very special gift that she picked up her phone and said, "Come, you know, come on, come, come and study." And she later told me actually that she had wanted to do graduate school at Princeton. Because her husband was at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton yes, for about five years. and But she was not allowed to do graduate study at Princeton because they didn't accept women. And this was in the 40s. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you mind if we loop back to the robber's cave experiment? Sure. I was thinking about how the boys hated each other so much. And the only thing that brought them together because they did try other ways to bring them together, right? No. Before the superordinate no, goal. No,
1: no, no. They used the subordinate goal. They didn't they didn't do a control group or anything. They they introduced the superordinate goal. And they they um you know, they assessed how that reduced
0: antipathies. Okay. I'm just thinking about our nation and how divided we are. And I'm wondering what can we learn from that and what sort of goal would be a good goal that could bring mm-hmm. us together enough? Because certainly something like 9-11 brought mm-hmm. the nation together, right? And, or a war might bring the nation together. But does it have to be something negative,
1: I love your questions, and I think it's important for all of us to think deeply about these issues. Um, so, as I had said about this particular experiment, field experiment, these boys were very, very similar. They were the same gender. They were the same race. They were the same religion. They came from similar family backgrounds, similar level of education. A lot of the groups that are in crisis in our nation, you know, are very different mm-hmm. and have different life experiences. And there's some issues that drive us apart, but also we have some demagogic leaders who want to, who prey on the differences who um, and use the differences and use people's anxieties and fears to continue to drive us apart because they want they, these leaders, these demagogues want power themselves, and it's easier to have more power as a leader if if the people are divided and fighting with each other. So, unfortunately, I mean there, there are many many factors here that are very different from the the Roper's kid experiment. Um, do I believe in the power of subordinate goal? I do. Mm. And actually, I did my senior thesis on the Princeton High School's crisis. In there, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of group conflict in the high school, Princeton High School. Some of it was based on race, some of it was based on race and bigotry, and other were based on class differences. And and I did kind of an observational study and then I talked about you know what what kind of subordinate goals could possibly be used. But I didn't implement anything because I did an observational study with recommendations, you know, based on this theoretical kind of construct, oh. but again, our politics are much more complicated, mm-hmm. and um, I believe that there's much more to be gained. Certainly, working to save the environment, working to save democracy, working to improve the educational system for everybody. You know, we need a strong, we need strong leaders who are democratic with a small D, and um, who believe that people, everybody needs to feel empowered. I mean, we know as psychologists that the more powerful people feel, the more in control of their lives and their situations, the more they they feel in control and feel powerful, the more effective they can be and the more generous they are towards other people and the more yes. um, helpful they are towards other people.
0: They would be more generous if they felt power. Yes. They would be less likely to scapegoat others.
1: Right, and, and of course, and when demagogues, you know, fire up, people and and tell them to hate and tell them to resent the other. And most people are susceptible to that. Um so that's so those that's a part of it is is a leadership issue. Yes, I think we you know, we need to have many, many different kinds of strategies and, and certainly what we're doing in APA in terms of dismantling systemic racism, um that's you know that's part of the package—that's part of the package. You know, let's get rid of these and let's let's try to eliminate. Let's try to reduce the inequities,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then people will feel that they have control over their lives, and then will be more likely to be able to reach out and, and help other people and and work with other people and won't have resentment. So so it's but it, it's you know it's a long we have a long country has a long history of racism and division. You know, I, I certainly my fervent hope and my one of my my vision from the EPA mm-hmm. is for us to talk about psychology and to talk about how racism is injurious to everyone, how mm-hmm. lack of power is injurious, a lack of, of health care equity is injurious.
0: How would we have those conversations when you say that? When you say for us to talk about it, who's the us? Psychologists. For
1: us to talk, the psychologists. Psychologists. And the APA, I mean, we have we have data. We have you know our science and our scientists mm-hmm. are superb in providing strong scientific foundations for um, behavior and behavior change. And it's appropriate for us to talk about that in the larger public arenas, policymaking arenas.
0: Okay, you mean for psychologists to share publicly about the science and data on these topics. Yes, as a way of being of service. Yes, that's what you mean. Yes, yes. So maybe to empower and encourage and give a vehicle for psychologists to be able to do that more. Yes, I mean it's all of that. It's it's yes we can do something. Yes we can make change.
1: Yes we see climate um, deterioration of our climate deterioration of our environment as such a serious problem. The psychologists are doing something about that. And we can continue to do things about that. We see a breakdown in communications, breakdown in relationships um, in our country and around the globe. Psychologists can do something about this. Like Bella Absick said, yes, psychologists can do something about this. And it's important for us to hear psychologists' voices.
0: How would you encourage psychologists to make psychological science known on gun violence? Well, like, How would they do that on a practical well, basis? I, I,
1: I think you know that... Actually, the government had, had actually banned research on gun Mm. violence, um, because the gun lobby was so strong. And, um, there had been a ban for, I think it's been 20 years on research on gun violence. And just recently, I think President Biden was able to open up some of that. So Mm. I would, so again, it's a matter of lobbying. Congress lobbying our state legislators so that we can do research on gun violence and then um, speaking about it in public arenas.
0: You have a lot of experience with passing legislation, again, even with barriers. Yes. And I wonder if you can share about that. Specifically, you've done a lot of work in Illinois with changing the law so that psychologists can prescribe. So maybe we should backtrack. Uh, can you share with listeners what the problem is as far as a nationwide shortage of professionals that can prescribe? Right. Just so they have a background. Right. Most of our states have tremendous,
1: uh, tremendously high levels of shortages of healthcare providers who can provide comprehensive mental health treatment in our communities and and mental health treatment that includes medication, be, having the, the authority to prescribe medications. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Illinois, for example, we have 102 counties, 85% of our 102 counties um, have been in a mental health crisis. And um, in 46 counties, in our states almost half of the counties in our states have no psychiatrists in more than half of those counties more than half of those 46 um, are psychologists um, and then hmm. in the other 52 counties we have both psychiatrists and psychologists but even in the most populous county in cook county in which the largest city in illinois resides the city of chicago we still in a mental health crisis because even though there's a, a density of academic psychiatrists in the center of the city around the corners of the city, there's still a, a tremendous healthcare shortage.
0: And that's nationwide. And that's nationwide. I know in New Jersey, there are wait lists and there is a nationwide shortage of professionals that can prescribe psychotropic medications. Right. Uh, it's a problem and not enough medical students are entering the specialization of psychiatry looking forward. Yes.
1: Exactly. It's a it's the, the specialization in medicine that pays the least. Um, it has the lowest stature of all medical specialties. And it's become not a very interesting career path because the psychiatrists are primarily writing prescriptions, they're not doing psychotherapy. So for psychiatrists who, who had initially gone into psychiatry because they loved, like, like you and I do, we loved mm-hmm. to work with people. We love to understand people. We, we love to talk to people about their thoughts and their behaviors and, and help them make, make personal changes. And having gone into psychiatry for those reasons, they're now not being able to do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, so, so it's not even an enjoyable Profession anymore, and so few and few psychiatrists going into it. And over fifty percent of the psychiatrists now are over the age of sixty, and are going to be retiring in the next you know ten to twenty years. And um, that profession isn't providing enough healthcare to the rest of our country. Yeah. Psychologists certainly have the capacity to learn about medicine, to learn about the. The functioning of our physical system mm-hmm. so that we can have a profound understanding of how medications work, um, why medications work, mm-hmm. how the interactions work. Right, exactly. And how we can counsel our patients to take medications along with the many different strategies that we use in psychotherapy and, and in individual yes. therapy and couples therapy and. and Family therapy, group therapy, Um, and in addition to that, we can also help our patients with providing appropriate medications.
0: Yes, and five states have allowed for psychologists to prescribe. That's right. And the military's been doing it for over 20 years successfully, but you were the leader in getting this passed in Illinois. In Illinois, that's right. We were the third state. To pass prescriptive authority legislation. How did you do it? I had been involved on a national
1: level. Actually, I was a uh, president of Division 35, the Society of Prescribing Psychology, in 2004. Um, so I was one of the earliest. I was the fourth president of the division, and I immediately got involved in advocating for prescriptive authority around the country. And I chaired our first. Midwinter conference in Orlando in 2005, and I brought in the military prescribers to talk to us about their work. And then in 2005, we actually had two states that had already passed prescription authority legislation New Mexico and Louisiana. And um, I invited those psychologists from those states to talk about how they advocated, how they lobbied successfully for their legislation Mm -hmm. and uh, as a way to inspire others to do that in their Mm -hmm. states. And then in 2008, actually, I chaired another midwinter conference of Division 55 in Kansas. I'm sorry, in Missouri. We had actually two sites for that meeting. We were in Jefferson City, the capital of Missouri, and then in Kansas City, Missouri. And so we met with the legislators in Jefferson City, and then we We had speakers and and a big dinner banquet um, in Kansas City, Missouri. So having done that on on a national level in different states, when I became president of the Illinois Psychological Association, um, many of my colleagues came over to me and said, come on, you have to do this here. And I said, well, you know, I'm not so sure. There are folks here who have antipathy towards prescriptive authority. And they said, but really, you know, you, you know what to do. You've done this. And I said, well, I need you. <laughs> we have to do this together. This is our superordinate goal. <laughs> we have to, I can't do this without you. And if this is important to you, as, it, as important as it is to me, then let's, we need to work together to get this done.
0: So you pulled together a team? Yes. How many people were on this team? So I worked with approximately 12 people were, you know, who were
1: um, kind of lieutenants in this group who took responsibility for different regions of the state. And I had total 640 psychologists
0: who were working with me around the state who were lobbying. That is such a huge number of psychologists. Yeah.
1: Well, we have 5,000 licensed clinical psychologists in Illinois.
0: Yeah. But for you to get 600 of them to lobby and I guess take charge of separate counties, is that what you did?
1: Exactly, going door to door, like my mom and I did back in um, in the 60s. Wow. But literally going door to door and talking door-to-door. to their neighbors and, and getting support from their neighbors and bringing their neighbors along to talk with their legislators. Hmm. And then we got third party support from law enforcement. And um, I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a police chief in central Illinois Illinois had started its prescriptive authority movement in 1991. There was continuing conversations about prescriptive authority, and Dr. Marlon Hoover was one of our earliest psychologists who actually got his MSCPs, Masters of Science in Clinical Psychopharmacology, back in the early 2000s in New Mexico. He's wonderful. He's fabulous. And he became a prescribing yes. psychologist in New Mexico. And he was president of the Illinois Psychological Association in the early 2000s. And he was very important to our movement in the 2000s. But the time really just wasn't yet right for our legislature. Uh, the president of our Senate in the 1990s, who was also um, a mentor for Barack Obama, that he famously said in the 1990s, RxP over my dead body. Oh. So we were up against uh, a lot of a lot of opposition. Don't
0: you love that you overcame that?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I do love
0: that. <laughs> I
1: do yeah. love that. You know, it's important that we mem- we remember everyone who was involved in this movement from the from the beginning. I always tell Marlon, you know, I stand on his shoulders. Mm. And, um, if it, if it weren't for him and it weren't for Terry Kohler, who's the executive director of the Illinois Psychological Association for over 21 years, you people who went before me, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have been able to accomplish what we did. But so given that history, um, then when I was president and people wanted to work with me to get this done, and then I, I approached the legislature and at that time in 2010, 2011, 2012, our legislature had already passed an expanded prescriptive authority for advanced practice nurses and mm-hmm. some, you know, limited prescriptive authority for physician assistants. And so they were coming around to the concept that people other than an MD could prescribe medications. And then we had um, really fabulous lobbyists, uh, the Taylor Louis group that whom we used, and then in all of the people who were working with me and organizing our state, um, they, everybody worked very hard and knocked on doors.
0: How did you get the police involved? Yeah.
1: So let me finish telling you this story about the police. So so I spoke to this. student. Yeah. So first of all, um, our Cook County Sheriff mm-hmm. infamously has said that his to the Cook County Jail is the largest mental health institution in the country, second only to the (sighs) Los Angeles County Jail.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: so he he is particularly sensitive to the issues of mental health and mental illness. 40% of those who are incarcerated in the county jail are diagnosed with a mental illness. Mm. And so he became um, a very early supporter of our uh, sheriff, Tom Dart, became a very early supporter of ours, public um, supporter.
0: Wow. That is just like moving that he said that and he was a great supporter. It makes sense.
1: And I have a history of working very closely with law enforcement from my early days in in Tallahassee, um, as we talked about, and over many, many years in Chicago and Illinois. So, and I was involved with the Illinois Association of Police Chiefs, Illinois Association of Sheriffs, So I was very comfortable in reaching out to law enforcement and talking to them about joining this movement. And so this police chief whom I spoke to in Central Illinois, he said he was really glad that I called because he said, you know, my officers go every week to the shooting range. And in Central Illinois, Mm -hmm. thank goodness, they don't really, they don't use their guns. But he said, but they go every week to the shooting range and they get, tested, you know, on their shooting acuity every quarter. And he said, but what we see every day is we see mentally ill on the streets. And we have no resources for that. Yeah. We take them and we have to take them to jail. And he said, we need to do something about that. Yes. And he said that the community he spoke to some of the counselors at the community mental health centers and he said, you know, they're intimidated. By the psychiatrists. And he said, We're not. You know, we're gonna help you because we need we we need to have resources. Mm. We, we we need to do do it differently from the way that we're doing it now. And he did, and he, he actually we had the FOP, the the fraternal order of police behind us. And yeah. this particular chief took um some of his deputies and, and the sheriff from Champaign County, um, and, and some of his deputies in uniform. And they came and they lobbied with us, um, with our state legislators, and they testified for us. And they said, you know, we, we wow. need this suite. We're not getting what we need right now from, from the services that, that are available.
0: Wow. This is reminding me of um, how earlier in your life you had pulled together various groups to start several things in Florida. The Victim
1: days. Witness Assistance Unit, right, and Refuge House. Yes, again, working with law enforcement and working with social service agencies.
0: Could you share with listeners how you started Refuge House as an example?
1: Yes, I was asked to start a program in the state attorney's office in Tallahassee in 1977. And they had just gotten a grant for, for a victim witness assistance office. And um, they, it was the chief investigator who hired me and he had come i had i had heard that there was a position that might be available um and i was on my internship at vanderbilt and he, he flew out to um, vanderbilt to meet with me and he said we need somebody to come and create this to create services for um, the victims of witnesses to come through our office because they don't know what to expect and, and they're often they've been traumatized by having been a, a victim of a violent crime and um, and we don't want to uh, re-traumatize them. It, there was a lot of actually enlightened thinking in Florida at that mm-hmm. time in the nineteen seventies. And women who, who were had been sexually assaulted and there was there was a lot of domestic violence. And he said we really need somebody to come and develop that unit. And I said, well I was happy to do that and they were and they hired me Um, And they gave me an office and a phone book and a telephone, (laughs) and I just started calling social service agencies. I introduced myself to law enforcement, and then I I went to all the shift changes in the police department and in the sheriff's office and started talking to the police officers about how to work with people, survivors of violent crimes. Um, How to talk with children, how to talk with women, how to talk with men who were who were survivors of crimes. And then I also talked to them about their own stresses. And I would say, tell me what's bothering you. What's on your mind? What can I help you with? Um, and they would talk to me and they would tell me. So, and, and I was on 24 seven call for them. And they knew when they called me that I'd be there for them to come out to the scene of the crime to work with the victim or I'd come meet them in the hospital. And they, they relied on me and they trusted me. Um, so when they came to me, the police came to me, and they said, you know, we have these mm-hmm. the women who are being or victimized by domestic violence. What do we do? We can take the batterer, the, the man out of the house, but that's only for a couple of days. And then what? You know, we, we need something. Mm-hmm. And they were in other communities. There were shelters for battered women and, and their families, their children. Um, and they said, you know, can you do something like that here? And so I talked to, again, a group of people and us, people who were working social service agencies, law enforcement uh, folks, police officers and sheriff's deputies, and one woman in particular, Peg Post, who who was a philanthropist and was very much, um, very much understood the need to have a safe place for women who had been victimized mm-hmm. by domestic violence. And-
0: How old were you when you were doing all of this coordinating? I was 25 and 26. It's remarkable. I just want to pause and thank you. Appreciate that that you were pulling together various leaders of social services, the police, philanthropists, to create something beautiful. You know, it didn't feel like I was
1: too young, or you know, I, I didn't think about it. It was just that I saw that there was a need, and people were talking to me about it. And I said, "Okay, let's do something." Again, back to our Rabbi Hillel quote. You know, let's there's there's something that needs to be done. Let's do it. Let's do it now. That's right. So we got together in my living room, and um, we decided that we what we need to do was we need to buy a house. So Peg Post actually provided the initial funding for that, and then raised money. And then we you know we wrote down all the things that we needed to get for the house. We need beds and towels and kitchenware and. Um, chairs and um you know sheets, I mean everything you know, that women and children could come we need toys um where women and children could come and feel safe.
0: Those are all the little things that are required to make big things happen. The minutiae of being of service in a community, it you know, some of the stuff is not that exciting,, yeah. but it's a piece of it,, yeah. and it's a piece of yeah. the work, yeah, yeah. And I was able actually to.
1: Um, work closely with the media, the local media, because they were very much interested in this. Um, so I would, I would speak mm-hmm. almost every day on, on television about what the needs were and what we were doing.
0: How did you get the media to cooperate?
1: I think because I was in the state attorney's office and the state attorney's office was, um, an office that was often in the news and, yeah. and the office was happy to have, you know, something very positive coming out of there their office. It, it wasn't just about you know all the terrible things, all the terrible crimes that were being prosecuted, but something that was very positive coming out of their office.
0: Beth, I'm afraid that we have to bring our interview to a close because we're running out of time, but I want to tell you how delighted I am to have had this conversation and how much I enjoyed this conversation.
1: Alexandra, it was my great pleasure and I appreciate your thoughtfulness and the questions that you were asking and the time that you took to kind of look at some of the things that I've done and and I just love the idea that you're also an MSCP uh, credentialed and so you and I are, are aligned on, on many different issues and I really appreciate you and, and the energy that you're putting into your
0: work. I very much appreciate you too and I will put um, in the notes, in the show notes, how people can find you. Yes. Yes, and I hope there'll be a part two later for this conversation. I look forward to that. Yes, thank you. Thank Thank you, Alexandra. This show is proud to offer free and open access to learning about psychology to listeners all over the world. If you have found any value from this or other episodes and would like to support the production costs of this show, visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Dr. Alexandra that's dr alexandra to buy her a coffee leave a comment or share show ideas also support the show by leaving an awesome rating on itunes click on the psychology america icon in your phone click see all episodes and scroll down to the very bottom to find ratings and reviews